It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. I feel fine. And so today, we're going to start preaching on the Revelation. Uh, some of us preached through it 17 years ago, and for a variety of reasons, I think we're to preach through it again. So would you pray with me? Lord God, we ask that you would cause us to preach you, our Lord Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. About 25 years ago, I introduced uh, the letters to the seven churches to my youth group in Danville, California. I introduced the study by, uh, well, I began to talk about all the troubles that we're experiencing in these times, things like hurricanes and earthquakes and rampant debauchery. I said, I said to the kids, wouldn't it be great if we had a, a chronology of, you know, what will happen in the future? Wouldn't it be great if we had, had a map? And then I introduced the, the revelation. I told them that I've been doing some amazing research and began talking about the harmonic convergence in the seven bowls of wrath. I showed them two graphs which systematically plotted the convergence in the hermeneutical systems of the apocalyptic vision as it relates to the socio-political geosyncratic issues of our day, which all clearly point to the year in which the Antichrist will appear on the world scene. 1991. I then revealed to them the remarkable numeric acuity so prevalent in the last 11 chapters of the Revelation. On the overhead, we began to fill in the blanks that would reveal the, the name of the Antichrist, all according to, of course, numeric acuitive construction. Before our very eyes, the name began to take shape. Saxwark Midge. Now, of course, I just made all this stuff up. But they were like totally buying it. And I'm talking about some smart kids, calculus, physics, seniors. They, they were smart, but, but they were buying it. I remember thinking at the time, oh my gosh, this is scary. I, I can't believe it's this easy to deceive people. Are we that desperate for a map? I said, I just don't know what this name Saxwork Midge means. Perhaps we could reverse polarity. And I flipped the overhead sheet over, and suddenly it was clear. Jim Kruskis, Jim Kruskis, who happened to be sitting in the back row of the room at that very moment because he was our high school intern. All the staff began to yell. The kids looked at me like, hey, man, you made up that numeric acuitive stuff, didn't you? But we got up, we ran to the back, we grabbed Jim, we dragged him up from kicking and, 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 and screaming. We, we held him there, uh, apparently against his will, and, and, and we ripped off his shirt, and sure enough, under his shirt was this like heavy metal satanic t-shirt. And then we ripped that off, and there was another heavy metal t-shirt, and we ripped out like four or five shirts until Jim was standing there in front of 150 kids, bare-chested, bare-chested, held back by the staff, kicking and struggling, bare-chested, but he wasn't really bare-chested. Jim's chest was covered with this thick, black, curly Greek hair. And so I screamed, let's check for the mark! 
because I had seen the movie The Omen. And we just happened to have an electric hair trimmer plugged in right behind Jim up on front of the stage. So as the staff held Jim back, we began to shave his chest hair, starting from the left, you know, working to the right. I, I remember I shaved the left side, and sure enough, this big black number six appeared. It had been hidden by all the, the chest hair. I, went to, I can't believe it. And then I shaved the middle, and another big black number six appeared. I said, Jim, I'm so disappointed. How do I explain to the youth committee that we hired the Antichrist for a high school intern? And then we shaved uh, the other side of Jim's chest, and sure enough, it revealed a, a number five. I said, oh, Jim, I'm sorry. Six, six, five. I was off by one. I'm sorry, I miscalculated, and Jim sat down. Now, this is the question. <laughs> did I miscalculate, or did I totally misunderstand? I was off by one. Or was it more than one? Whatever the case, I wasn't the first to get it wrong. You may remember a couple years ago, all the hubbub around John Hagee and that other guy about the four blood moons and the end of the world and Jesus coming back and, and all the talk that Barack Obama, you know, he kind of looked like the Antichrist sometimes. <laughs> a couple decades ago, there were just a slew of books about Saddam Hussein in the end times. You, you could get them really cheap right after the second uh, Persian Gulf War. Before that, it was Gorbachev and his freaky weird birthmark. I mean, how else to explain something like that? I also remember that the name Ronald Wilson Reagan, it somehow adds up to the number 666, and that was even his address, 666. Before that, folks were convinced that the Antichrist was Hitler. During the Revolutionary War, many Americans believed that uh, King George III was, was the Antichrist. For most of Protestant history, the Pope was thought to be the Antichrist. Folks like John Calvin, John Wesley, Martin Luther, they all thought the Pope was the Antichrist. So Luther, for instance, he thought that the world was going to end within in his century. The church father Hippolytus taught that the world would end in 500 AD. People were going nuts around 1000 AD, even more than they were going nuts around 2000 AD just a few years ago. Jehovah's Witness have set end times dates for 1874, 1878, 1881, 1910, 1914, 1918, 1925, 1975, and 1984, and, and now it seems they've slowed down a bit. But when I was in high school, you may remember uh, the late great planet earth that book was the rage i still have a book on my shelf by the same author it's entitled the 1980s countdown to armageddon it's full of frightening statistics and and evidence uh, uh, that the ussr appears in the revelation and fulfills all of these uh, bible prophecies 1988 Edgar Weissenant sold over 3 million copies of 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Could Happen in 1988. 1988 was one 40-year generational period from the founding of Israel in 1948. By late December 1988, you could get those books for really cheap. But in 1989, Weissenart came out with 89 Reasons Christ Could Return in 1989. But people didn't buy as many books that time around. Pat Robertson has predicted the end of the world and the second coming of Christ several times. April 29, 2007 was his last prediction. The cumulative batting average <laughs> of all these chronologists appears to be 0, 0.000 and we still buy the books. A couple decades ago, a fellow named David Koresh taught a class on the Revelation he obviously did some miscalculating with some rather tragic results, including 80 dead Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas. Did he just miscalculate, or did he entirely misunderstand? An old friend really into the end times prophecy stuff called me one day and said something like, the woman will ride the beast over the skies of Jerusalem tonight. 
Well, maybe she did. I, I, I don't know for sure. All things are possible with God, except maybe that which he says isn't possible. Acts 1-7, the resurrected Jesus says, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In Matthew 24, Jesus says, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. But Jesus does say something about discerning seasons just before that. But then he seems to say, now is the season. So always be ready, you foolish virgins. Keep oil in your lamp. Stay awake and be ready. Well, why, why are we concerned, so concerned to get the exact day and, and hour? My old friend sent me one of her prophecy newsletters. It, it quoted the revelation about famines and earthquakes. And then the rest of the newsletter had to do with canning fruit and food storage and nutritional concerns during the tribulation. Is that what the revelation is about? Is that why we'll be blessed if we read it? We'll get the chronology so we can prepare, be prepared in the last days with, with canned foods and stores of, stores of, stores of water and, and, and pre preserves and, 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 and shotguns to sit on top of our stash and protect ourselves from starving people. Is, is that what it's about? Is it a map? This is a map that came in a book that, that I got somewhere. It's a, it's a map of uh, the space and time, space and time during the, the end time, supposedly based upon the revelation. Actually, you can make a, a, a good argument that the modern nation state of Israel, along with the 9-11 terrorist attack, a whole bunch of wars in the Middle East, that they wouldn't even have happened unless uh, some folks in the 19th century came up with this map and figured that Israel needed to exist in order for Jesus to come back so we could all get raptured before the world got annihilated uh, in war. Then that, that's a long and, and involved story, but I'm asking, is that what the revelation is about? Manipulating global politics in the 20th century, sitting on stashes of food, holding shotguns in order to protect yourself from starving people, or maybe getting yourself raptured, you know, so you won't have to suffer the tribulation. Like Jesus, who said, in this world you will have tribulation. In the Left Behind series, the great post-rapture Jewish Bible scholar San ben Judah sits in a safe house unlocking the chronology of the revelation, then posting it on the internet so that the one billion tribulation saints can be prepared for the coming wars and the glorious appearing when Jesus will return on a white horse and all eyes will see him. I think I've read most of those left behind books and they're definitely engaging. But they paint a really weird picture when you consider that in Revelation 6.10, the martyrs under the altar, they cry out to Jesus, how long, O Lord? Stupid martyrs, if they just read the Left Behind series, they'd know exactly how long. In Revelation 16.15, Jesus says very clearly, behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake. Vernard Eller writes, is it plausible that an author who includes such a statement uh, at two points in his book, could be writing the very same book for the purpose of telling us when the day was to come. Like Jesus wants to come like a thief, but here's the data you need to calculate the time of his coming. But that's something to, to think about. But I'm telling you, I don't think I ever held the attention of the youth group like I did when I told those teenagers I knew who the Antichrist was. And when the world would end, and you know, I'm, I'm just like them. I want to plan my future. Because if I don't, who else will? And besides, it's hard to keep oil in your lamp 24 hours a day. 
I like control. And so I need knowledge. I need knowledge in order to protect myself, in order to save myself. I need to know when, where, and to whom. I want a chronology. I want the map. was Kevin. And the six dwarves in the movie Time Bandits, they're running from the supreme being because they stole the map to space and time. The supreme being says, stop now. It will bring you great danger. And that kind of reminds me of what he said to Adam and Eve. The day you take, the day you eat of that tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll die. I, I, I think, I bet Adam and Eve were looking for something like the map. In some form, they wanted to control the future. They wanted the map. I think we'd all like the map. Well, there are four traditional views regarding the chronology of the Revelation. First are, are the preterists. They argue that most of the Revelation happened in 70 A.D. or, or before. So holy moly, have we been left behind? Well, no, not according to the preterists. They say all the imagery and events described in the Revelation were easily understandable and applicable to the people to whom John sent the vision. It was about them and not a rapture 2,000 years later. Most critical Bible scholars hold this view t today. And it does seem awfully clear to me, having carefully examined the text in, in places like Matthew and in the Revelation that when Jesus said this stuff about discerning seasons and when he said this generation, I tell you truly, this generation will not pass away until all of these things have come to pass. Well, he was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, one generation from the ministry of Christ. It, it was right after Jesus said those things that he goes on to say, but of that day and that hour, no one knows. Number two, historists. Historists believe the Revelation is this elaborate map of all church history. They're the ones who usually peg the Pope as the Antichrist. It was a very popular view during the Reformation among Protestants. Adherents were folks like Wycliffe, Knox, Tyndale, Zwingli, Melanchthon, Calvin, Luther, Isaac Newton, John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitefield, Charles Finney, Charles Spurgeon, Matthew Henry, all the, all the heavyweights. But very few ascribe to historism today. Uh, for they had this like one day in the Revelation equals uh, one year in our history scenario, and they kind of ran out of time. But more than that, the Pope has turned out to be a pretty good guy, right? Not a very good antichrist. Number three, futurists. Futurists believe that everything in the Revelation after the first three chapters refers to events that will happen in the future. This is the most popular view today among evangelicals. It's the view of the Left Behind series. It's the view that you'll find probably on the shelf at, at Walmart or in the National Enquirer and in most Hollywood movies. You see, it makes for great science fiction and historical movies about bloodthirsty popes with the number 666 stamped on their forehead are just not in vogue anymore. Understandably, the Roman Catholic Church really advocated this futurist view during the Reformation. Most Protestants 
shunned the view until just 150 years ago. There are different kinds of futurists. The most popular today are the dispensationalists who argue that the church won't even be around for most of the revelation because we get raptured at the start of chapter 4. Of course, this view, along with the historist view, implies that most of the revelation has nothing to do with the people that it was first sent to. And it really has nothing to do with us, Christians, that believe in Jesus because we get raptured in chapter 4. Number four, idealists or spiritualists. Idealists or spiritualists argue that John did not intend or believe that his book had anything to do with particular historical events, but, but instead it was a visionary expression of timeless truth. This view was popular among the early church fathers. All that to say that the precise who, when, and where of the revelation is pretty hard to nail down. But then again, maybe not. Let's read it. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation, the revelation, the revelation. The word in Greek is apocalypsis. It's where we get our word apocalypse. Apocalypse literally means unveiling. Apo, out of, and calupto, hide, cover, or veil. Revelation 1.1, the unveiling, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice that it doesn't say the revelation of the Antichrist. In fact, the word Antichrist doesn't even appear in the revelation. It doesn't say the revelation of the Antichrist, and it doesn't say the revelation of the map to the end times. It says the revelation of Jesus Jesus Christ. That's, that's probably meant to be the title of the book, The Revelation of Jesus. It can mean that Jesus is the one doing the unveiling, or even better, that Jesus is the one that's being unveiled. And of course it means both, because Jesus is the Word that reveals all things. And Jesus is the Word through whom all things are created and sustained. So He is the thing behind everything. Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed, blessed is the one who reads aloud. We're doing that right now. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Blessed are those who read, hear, and keep. Not just a few Bible scholars somewhere that can figure it all out. In the early church, you know, most people were probably illiterate. So what they would do is they would gather together and someone would read the entire revelation in one sitting, which I hope you do. Even if you don't understand it, I hope you would just read it. Hear it. Hang on to it. Blessed are those who hear and keep. That, that could be us. Blessed. Blessed are those who hear and keep. Why? For the time is near. Literally, the time is egus. The time is at hand. Egizo is the verb, both from agkale, which means like the crook of, of the arm. King James Version send, then translates it, the time is at hand, because it means at hand. It's something like you could reach out and grab with your arms. You know, Jesus came preaching, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now we just read the time is at hand. Whose hand? I guess whoever reads and hears and keeps takes to heart the prophecy. They, they read, we read. That must mean that the time has been at hand for like 2,000 years. So for those early Christians in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Philadelphia, the seven churches to whom the letter of Revelation was sent, the time was at hand. Well, where was the Antichrist? Well, I don't know exactly, but John tells us, 2 John 7, that the Antichrist was already in the world. You can read that, 2 John verse 7. But now th this also means that for Martin Luther and his historist friends who read the Revelation, the time was at hand. So am I saying that the Pope was the Antichrist? No, not, not necessarily. 
However, according to John, the spirit of the Antichrist is in the world and has been, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus, which means God is salvation, is the Antichrist. That's 1 John 4, 2 through, through 3. That is crazy, because maybe you've met the Antichrist. And the time is at hand. And check this out for every believer in the future who reads and hears. Time is at hand, and the time is at hand for us right now if we read and we hear. And I'm not just talking metaphorically. The time, the kingdom, the end really is at hand in space and time. Our time. So you might ask, well, then when is Jesus coming? I know he's coming on the clouds of heaven. He's coming on a white house. He's, of course, and he's coming on the clouds of heaven, and, and all eyes will see him. Yes, you will see that. You will see that. But if I take Scripture seriously, I have to acknowledge that Jesus has come again and again and again throughout Scripture and throughout the Revelation. He may come to the church in Ephesus and remove their lampstand, chapter 2, verse 5. We'll read that real soon. He may come to Pergamon to war upon the Nicolaitans, chapter 2, verse 16. If Sardis won't wake up, he may come on them like a, three, a thief, chapter 3, verse 3. He said to the suffering Philadelphia, hold fast, I'm coming soon. Did he mean 1988? Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, maybe? Well, that would be awfully depressing for the suffering folks and Ancient Philadelphia, don't, don't you think? He said to those in Laodicea, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. I, I think he comes for, for each of us. He told his disciples, I will come again and will take you to myself. I think Jesus comes to get each of his beloved individually at death. And that's why he even said to the thief on the cross, truly, truly, this day you will be with me in paradise. Matthew 26, to the religious leaders, Jesus declares, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated on the clouds of, uh, seated at the right hand of God and coming on the clouds of heaven. From now on. It's like Jesus was, is, and is to come. Revelation 3.3, this is what we read. The time, in Greek, kairos, the time kairos is at hand. Not chronos, kairos. In biblical Greek, there are two words for time, writes Guy Chevreux. The first is chronos. English words like chronometer or chronology are derived from its root. Chronos is clock time. One o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock, January, February, March, all, all marching right along. The second Greek word is special time. Those who are mothers know the difference between chronos and kairos. About nine months or so into a pregnancy, chronos time, Many soon-to-be mothers shake their husbands by the shoulder and say, It's time! He opens his bleary eyes, looks at the clock, and says, It's 3.17 in the morning. Go back to bed. She's on Kairos time. He's talking Kronos. So he gets shaken again. It's time! It's time! And this time he gets it. It's time. All reality is now pregnant with the time, with eternity. All chronos is pregnant with kairos. All times are pregnant with logos, the meaning, the plot. So the revelation isn't just about seven little churches in the preterist past or just some series of events in the Middle Ages involving some corrupt popes or just some ten-nation European confederacy in the future or just some spiritual ideas in, in space. Well, actually, I think it may be about all those things. But I know that it's about you. The who is Jesus. And you, the where is here. The when is now. Their eyes got big in youth group 25 years ago, for they thought that the revelation was about them. When and where they were. The time was at hand, and Jesus was coming soon. Well, your eyes should get big too. Because the revelation is about you, when and where you are. The time is at hand, and Jesus is coming soon. I guarantee that it will be within one generation of right now. 
Jesus is coming. But you don't need a map. You need a revelation. You need an apocalypse. If you think Jesus is a thief, of course you want a map. Because you have to protect yourself from thieves, right? But Jesus didn't say, I am a thief. He said, I'm coming like a thief. Keep your lamps burning, all you virgins. <laughs> Don't be foolish. Be wise. See, maybe wisdom isn't a map. Maybe wisdom is a person or hope in a, in a person. Maybe what we need to know is not when he's coming, but just who it is that is coming. Maybe we don't need the revelation of a map, but the revelation of Jesus, who is not a thief, but the lover of your soul, the owner of your soul. He can't steal it. He owns it. Whatever the case, the time is at hand. The time is at hand, and it has been for 2,000 years. You, you might say, well, gosh, the revelation sure seems like a map. Does it? Have you read it recently or just seen the movie? You might say, well, it sounds like some really bad stuff is going to happen. Well, have you watched the news? Bad stuff is happening. You know, if the revelation is a map, it's a really funky, weird kind of map. The end comes in several places throughout the book. You know the stars? fall from the sky, the sky rolls up and vanishes in chapter 6. That's like one-third or one-fourth of the way through the book. Time is weird in the Revelation, and time is weird in the Bible. Not only is a day as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day, but Bible time doesn't always seem to travel in a straight line. It seems to kind of almost move in circles. Many Old Testament prophecies, they seem to refer to something in the time of the prophet, like Isaiah, and yet they also seem to refer to events in Christ's life. They're like timeless realities, but not irrelevant to our time, but touching our time. Many times, even at, at, at once. In Revelation 12, we read about Christmas and the ascension of Christ. In Revelation 13, John writes, the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. That's way before Christmas. That's way before 30 A.D. In John's gospel, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Not I was, but I am. God tells Moses that his name is I am that I am. Revelation 1, 8, 21, 6, 22, 13, Jesus says just what God Almighty says. I am the Alpha and the Omega. That means the beginning and the end. The one who is, was, and is to come. See, people like us who believe the Word of God know that the distinction between past, present, and future is a stubbornly persistent illusion. At Niles Bohr's funeral, Albert Einstein said, people like us who believe in physics know that the distinction between past, present, and future is a stubbornly persistent illusion. Isn't that fascinating? Physics has now demonstrated, I mean, even with experiments, that, that time is relative to the speed of light. And that at the speed of light, everything must somehow exist in a perfect present. Complete amnes. Was, is, and is to come in an eternal now. At the speed of light, there is no chronology. Just eternity. Or maybe a chirology, if, if you will. Not chronology, but chirology. God is light, says Scripture. And in the beginning, God said, let there be light. He spoke it into the, to the void. God is beyond time, but his eternal kairos is pressing in on our temporal chronos. He is the light that enlightens all men, writes John. He entered our time in Jesus, the light of the world, so that we might have eternal life. Eternal life is, according to John, knowing Jesus, and we can know him when? Now, now, now is the point that eternity touches time. Not, now is not in our chronology. As soon as you look at it, it's no longer now. Now, it's gone. 
Now is the point eternity touches time. Now the present moment is when we step out of time somehow, reflect on time, and we ask, does my time have meaning? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, eternal meaning. And Jesus, the light of the world, gives us meaning, which is himself. The revelation reveals Jesus, the eternal way, truth, and life that transforms all our time. So when you're tempted to cheat on your wife, or maybe chase after fame and fortune like the rest of our world like they did in the city of Thyatira, well, you might just see reality as it truly is. I mean, you might just see an ancient harlot drunk with the blood of the saints. And you might just see a slaughtered lamb standing on the throne, and you might just call out, help me, Jesus. I need you, Jesus. Not more instructions. I need you. Or when your life is falling apart, poverty, suffering, tears like the church in Smyrna, the preterist-futurist debate, it just won't help you very much. But read about the new Jerusalem streets of gold, the one who stands on the throne or sits on the throne and says, behold, I make all things new, and that might help you. Hope might help you. He might help you. If they put a knife to your throat and say, renounce your faith or die, like they did in Pergamum, theories of the numeric acuity of the seven bowls of wrath or the eleven, whatever that was, well, that won't be much help. But faith in the rider of the white horse who is called faithful and true and is the word of God who died and lives forevermore, that might make a difference. And now I'm not just talking psychology. I'm talking physics. I'm talking about the real world, the eternal world, invading this temporal world. Seventeen years ago, I preached through the Revelation. Some, some of you were there. I preached through it for the first time. And I remember wondering if any of it would be relevant. During that time, planes flew into the World Trade Center, and we watched them fall, watched the towers fall. God didn't hate the people in the towers, but the towers represented world trade which the Revelation seems to describe as a great harlot who is loved by the kings of the earth for her pleasure, for they commit fornication with her, and yet deeply resented because of her, her power. When it happened, I could almost see the great harlot who rides the beast and the kings of the earth who fornicate with her, and I could almost hear the angel crying, Come out of her, my people. Come out of her. The next day, after that day, we had a service at the church and preached the Word. After the service, my friend Tom, he emailed me or called me, I can't remember, but, but, but he said, Peter, did you see it? Did you see him? Uh, did you see the rider on the white horse? While we had the service, I looked up and I saw this rider on a white horse. He kept riding around us as we were singing and praying. I've heard stuff like that from, from missionaries. During that time, one woman saw a giant eagle outside the window of the church, just like the one in Revelation 12. It was screeching at us and saying, my banner over you is love. And during that time, I spent countless hours praying for a woman who had been brought, bought and sold as a harlot, but whom Jesus revealed to be his bride. And one morning during that time, my wife had a vision of a, of a lake of fire that turned into a sea of glass, and out of it emerged a woman of pure spun gold. I don't think any of those things were meant to be a prediction of the date of Jesus' return. But I think all of those things were part of the revelation of Jesus. That Jesus is here. The time is at hand. And Jesus wins. When Bernard Travier was a young seminarian, he tells about how they used to play basketball after class at this public school. 
and uh, the janitor uh, would wait for them to finish their games. The janitor was this elderly black man with a white beard who would patiently wait, and while he would wait, invariably he would read his Bible. One day Bernard inquired of the man, what are you reading? The old man didn't simply respond to the Bible. He said, I'm reading the Revelation. A little surprised, Bernard replied, the book of Revelation? Do you understand it? And the old man looked up and he said, yes, I understand it. Bernard said, you understand it? What does it mean? And the old man said, it means my Jesus is going to win. He's going to win. He's going to win, has won, and is always winning. Jesus is the Word of God, that's what we say, who creates and sustains all things. God in Christ Jesus is in absolute control. He even lets us steal the map and make an absolute mess of of things. He even lets us take the fruit from the tree just so we could see how insanely good He truly is. In time bandits, they they steal the map, but they can't follow the map. And so they make a mess of everything and end up in a pit controlled by Satan. The supreme being suddenly appears, destroys evil, turns death into life, and he tells them about the map. having to appear like that really is the most tiresomely noisy manifestation. So, rather expected of one, I suppose. Get down, get down. Oh, great one, oh, supreme being, oh, creator of all the universe, without whom we'll be naught but scarab beetles on the... dreadful mess. Dead? No excuse for laying off work. I'd like to explain everything. We didn't mean to steal the map. We didn't mean to run away. It's what do you mean you didn't mean to steal the map? It, it just sort well, of... Of course you didn't mean to steal it. I gave it to you, you silly man. Do you mean you knew what was happening to us all the time? Well, of course. I am the supreme being. I'm not entirely dim. Oh, no, sir. We weren't suggesting that, sir. It's just that... Yes, I let you borrow my map. Now, I want every bit of evil placed in here, right away. Come on, then. Back to creation. I mustn't waste any more time. They'll think I've lost control again and put it all down to evolution. I love the movie. Even stealing the map was part of the map. Even taking fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was part of God's plan to reveal the glory of the tree of life and the one who is life and who hangs on the tree for the love of you. Even sin, especially sin, is used to reveal the wonder of God's grace. When God finally reveals Himself, He's not an elderly English gentleman. He's the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world and slain from the very foundation of the world. He's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And everything has happened that everyone would see Him and fall in love with Him. That has faith, hope, that is have faith, hope, and love in Him and through Him. That's what God is creating now. Love, faith, hope, and love in you. His heart beating in you. And, and you, you b- b- believers, you know him even now. 
you know that he's not a thief. We're the thieves. We project that onto him. We're the thieves. He's not the thief. You know him even now. That's the good news. Not that you have a map. You have Jesus because Jesus has you. The way is not a map that belongs to you. The way is Jesus, and you belong to him. Two weeks ago, Susan and I moved my elderly mother to Albuquerque, New, New Mexico, to live with my sister Lydia, my 89-year-old, almost 90-year-old mother. The weeks before the move were pretty stressful for mom. She got scammed by this con artist. And she was preparing to leave the home that she lived in for 20 years, the last 13 years by herself since my dad died. And on top of everything else, she got tons of, she gets, and I hope she doesn't still get, but she got tons of junk mail from Christian organizations wanting her to give money to their cause because they said that the end was coming. Just look, evidence after evidence, the end is, is coming and so she should be stressed. One night she called me, or I called her, I, I can't remember, but she was in a terrible panic, and I asked what she was worried about. She gave me a litany of troubles, but not about the things I would think she was going to say, but about the world scene, about, you know, liberals and Muslims and the earthquakes and the hurricanes and all sorts of storms, political, ethical, social. And then she said, Peter, it's so bad. Peter, don't you think it's the end times? And I said, Mom? You lived through the Depression. You lived through World War II. You lived through the Holocaust and the, the Nazis and the Cold War and segregation. I mean, dang, that was pretty bad. At least as, as bad as anything today, Mom. But Mom, so what if it's the end times? And mom, you're 89, almost 90. It's the end times, mom. <laughs> How long do you think you're going to live? It's the end times. But, but mom, that's not bad news. That's, that's good news. Mom, you know that Jesus is in total control of this whole thing. I know you. You know that, mom. But more than that, you know him, and, and soon you're going to see him. You're going to see him, Mom. And Mom, you know him. Mom, you know, you know that you love him, and you know that he loves you, and you know Dad is already with him, and soon all of us will be with him together. Mom, wouldn't it be great if it actually were the end times? I don't know if it is, but wouldn't it be great if it was? Wouldn't it be great if it was the time of the end because Jesus, our Jesus, is the end? She was quiet for a moment, and then she said, Oh, Peter, that's right, that's right. I don't know what got into me. Thanks for reminding me. That's right. Goodbye. <laughs> revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus. Literally, the apocalypse, the unveiling of Jesus. And this is the apocalypse now. You kind of expected that, didn't you? On the night that the way was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the covenant in my blood. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. In the morning... He hung on a tree, and his flesh ripped, and he delivered up his spirit. Scripture says that as his flesh ripped, the curtain in the temple separating the glory of God from humanity ripped from the top to the bottom. 
It was the apocalypse. The veil ripped. It was unveiled. It was the apocalypse. And this is the apocalypse now. Never run from the end. Always run to the end. For the end is Jesus. Blessed are you who hear it and, and keep it. Amen. With all creation I sing praise to the King of Kings. You are my everything and I will adore you. So Lord God, open the eyes of our hearts that we would see what is true and that we would adore you even now. Thank you, Lord God, that we just did. And so we say what you tell us to say at the end of the Revelation, and that is, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Forgive us, Lord Jesus, for being afraid of your coming, and we invite your coming. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. You know, um, if there was ever an apocalyptic fervor in the history of the world, and I'm using apocalypse in quotes, it would have been the time right before Jesus came. The Jews were really worked up about the end of the world and the coming of the Messiah, and they were waiting for a king to deliver them from the oppression of Rome. And Jesus came. And do you remember what he said when he came? He came preaching something. Do you remember what he, it says this in the Synoptic Gospels, that Jesus came preaching, and it was also what John was preaching. Do you remember what he came preaching? For kingdom of God is at hand. And we just read, the time is at hand. But right before he said the kingdom of God is at hand, he said one other word, and the word is repent. I used to think repent meant, try harder, Peter but that's not what it means. Repent means have a new mind, have a new way of thinking. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Everybody was at war trying to bring the kingdom of heaven and blaming each other, and, and he said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's my prayer for us, that we come to believe the kingdom of heaven is at hand and that we would cry out, come, Lord Jesus, come. In his name, believe the gospel. Oh, and I should say this. You may have all kinds of questions. That's great. We're going to spend a year preaching through the Revelation, okay? Amen. Amen.